Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning in person at our building at 10.30 a.m. In July, we've been outside doing lawn chair church out in the field, uh, but it's getting warm, and so we'll be back starting next week in August, back indoors where we've got the fans on and it's cooler. And so you can come on out and join us. We are a church that meets in the Milwaukee, Oak Grove, and Gladstone area, just south of Portland, Oregon. Uh, you can also check out all of our online uh, offerings, our podcast. We don't just have this Sunday morning service, but we have the 20-minute Bible study, which is our weekly Bible teaching through the Bible podcast. It's currently in First Samuel. We have the Talk About Anything podcast, which is a monthly long-form conversational podcast. And we have our new podcast called Starting Points, which looks at each book of the Bible and each section of the Bible. And it's a starting point uh, for you if you're like, I, I, I'm not sure where to go. I, I, I know that the Bible's got Jesus and there's stories in it, but I don't know what's happening. That is a resource to you. You can just search Faith on Hill on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Facebook, and you'll find where those uh, podcasts are available. They're also available on our website, faithonhill.com. Now, if Faith on Hill is your home church, or you just want to pray with us, next Saturday, all of our churches are going to be getting together, and myself and Mark Harris from our church will be representing Faith on Hill. And we're part of a family of churches called the Pacific Conference, 53 churches in Washington and Oregon, additionally a couple of church plants that aren't formally part of our group yet, but they're, they're on the process. And we are going to meet together next Saturday to elect our next conference superintendent, uh, Superintendent Randy, who has uh, preached at Faith on Hill several times in the last five years, uh, who our congregation has gotten to know. He is retiring, well-deserved, and so we will be electing a new superintendent. We have no idea who it's going to be. We don't have campaigns. We don't have people that say, you know, I'm running. We just have an open ballot of all the pastors who are eligible. Uh, by the way, it's not me. I'm not eligible. You have to be ordained within our conference for a five-year period minimum. And my ordination, I was ordained years ago, back in 2006, but my transfer of ordination from my previous family of churches uh, only uh, processed through last year. So I'm not eligible for like four more years, nor do I particularly want the job. So we are praying for who God would uh, anoint and appoint to be our next superintendent, pastor to pastors, overseeing leader, un kind of a unifying voice in our family of churches. Exciting, you know, uh, humbling, all of these things. Be praying that God would lead us and guide us and anoint and appoint the leader that he wants. We're going to continue our study this morning in Matthew's gospel. It says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 16, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, Today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then Jesus left them and went away. It says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus asking for a sign. These were two very different groups of people. 
It would be as if it said the Republicans and the Democrats came to Jesus asking for a sign. It would be as if the Red Sox and the Yankees, or um, you know, as, as if Bernie and Trump or whoever, whoever you think is the most polar opposite, if those two groups or people came together in unity and said, we're going to do this thing together. The Sadducees were the elites. They tended to be the old money of Israel. They were theologically, what we would call theologically liberal in that, that they did not take uh, the, the scripture literally in almost any sense. Uh, they were very secularized in their spiritual outlook. The Pharisees, on the other hand, we would call them the conservatives, the fundamentalists. You know, they, they were the ones who were extremists. And then there was a group that was even more extreme than them, the Zealots and the Essenes, but, but they weren't even in the picture because the two main groups were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they're coming together in unity or a common purpose, and they're asking Jesus for a sign. Why? Because it's gotten to the place where Jesus is such a threat to both groups' power and standing and influence and authority that they say, we've got to work together. And they're going to put it to Jesus. Prove to us that you are the Messiah. Prove to us that you come from God. Prove to us that we should follow you. Give us a sign. Jesus does not answer their question, at least not directly. One of the greatest lessons I ever learned came from a non-Christian, non-church source. It was actually a guy, uh, a secular, non-observing Jewish guy that I, I'm aware of, and I, I listened to his podcast, and he formerly worked in politics, and he said one of the things that he learned in politics, and he does a sports podcast, which is why I listen to him, uh, very insightful on baseball, and so, but he, he used to work in politics, and he said one of the lessons he learned working in politics was that if somebody comes and asks you a question or demands that you give a response, and it's obviously not because they're actually interested in what you have to say, but it's they want you to get, get you to say something so then they can trap you or they can use it against you. He said you have to reject the premise of the question. You know, somebody comes up to you and says, why are you against this or why are you for that? And he said, if you're a good politician, you will never accept the premise of the question and you will instead respond with what is really important to you. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is a politician. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying is that Jesus used the same wisdom, just basic wisdom. They're coming to trap him. I'm not going to fall into that trap. And he responds with just some common sense. He says, hey, you can read the signs of the weather. You know, we, we can do this too, right? Where uh, it can be a beautiful morning. I don't even have to open my weather app. It can be a beautiful morning. But, you know, maybe you can look out to the north or the west or the east or whatever, and you can see those clouds building in a way where you're like, that's not going to last. This is going to get cloudy or stormy quick. Right? There are times where you just can see, uh, you know, times where it's incredibly rainy, but you can look and you can see, hey, I can see the blue sky building. I mean, it goes both ways. They had these little truisms, the sort of farmer's almanac wisdom. Hey, if you see the sky doing this at night, that's an indication that something is, 
is brewing. Something's going to happen. Uh, and, and these are the, the truths that all of them lived by in an agriculturally based society where weather is life and death for you and your crops and you and your livestock. He says, you can read those signs. You know how to look outside and say, hey, the wind's in the east. And this time of year, whenever the wind is in the east, it's going to be hot and warm and clear. Or you can say, hey, the wind's out of the west. And this time of year, whenever it's out of the west, it will bring rains off of the ocean. That's, you can know these things. He says, how is it that you can't interpret the signs of the times? He says, you should be able to look around. And you should be able to see the blinder receiving their sight. Those who were in bondage and oppressed are receiving freedom. Those who were sick are receiving healing. Those who were living in rebellion, who, who were just entrenched in sin. Matthew, the apostle who wrote this gospel, is a testament to that. Somebody who wasn't just a sinner, but he was a traitor to his own people. And now he is walking in repentance. What more do you need to see that Jesus not only has the power of God, but he is the Messiah promised to the Jewish people, the Savior that was foretold in the ancient prophets and their work. And he says, the only reason you're asking for such a sign is not because you want to believe, but because you are a wicked and adulterous generation. Because you do not care about the things of God. There are so many out in our world that want proof. And Jesus says to them first, how much more proof do you need? How much more do you need to see? Then he also says, do you actually want the proof? Do you actually want the evidence? I have heard, and I'm sure you have too, I have heard people say, if only you could show me the proof, then I could believe in Jesus. How much more do you want? I believe firmly that the cross that Jesus crucified and risen from the dead is the ultimate evidence for Jesus. It's the ultimate proof that over five people who knew Jesus of Nazareth to have been put to death by the Romans on a cross, crucified publicly for all to see. And then they saw somebody who they believed to be Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That is the thing to deal with. That is the ultimate proof. Jesus performed countless miraculous things. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. The blind received sight. The demons were cast out. All of that. But you know what? I wasn't there. Not all proof is the same. right? Not all proof is the same. I wasn't there to see it. So that's not something that I have to contend with. Just in the same way that, you know, if... If somebody said, why do you believe that thing? Or why do you believe this thing? And I said, well, because my dad told me. That would mean very little to you, but it means a whole lot to me. Proof is not all equal. Some proof is, is very, very critical to one person, and it's almost non-applicable to another. But here is an evidence, a proof, that every person has to contend with. Because over 500 people who knew for a fact that Jesus had died, again, executed publicly, executed publicly by a hostile occupying government. 
And they interacted with, spoke with, physically touched, you know, handshakes, hugs, whatever, ate meals with, walked and talked with a man that they believed to be the risen Jesus Christ. How many people today would say, I would believe, I would accept the Christian faith if, and I really believe they're asking the wrong question, so I can't accept the premise. I don't believe that the question is, can you answer this question over here? I believe the whole thing that matters is, what do you do with the risen Jesus? And if Jesus is risen from the dead, then that side question over there becomes unimportant because whatever he says is the thing to do. So what does Jesus say? He says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. This is expanded on in other parts of the Gospels, but what Jesus is saying is just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so Jesus will be three days in the earth. He died three days later, rose again. That is the sign that he gave to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By the way, both church tradition and the book of Acts tell us that some of those Pharisees and Sadducees did believe after Jesus rose from the dead. The sign of Jonah was effective for their salvation. The world around us asks for a sign. It doesn't matter if it's the secular world or the spiritual world. It doesn't matter if it's the old or the young. It doesn't matter if it's the right or the left. When we come as ambassadors, messengers, heralds of the kingdom of heaven, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ, the world around us asks for a sign. Why should I listen to you? And I will say the same thing that Jesus said. You are given the sign of Jonah. You are given Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. And yet what happens while the world outside is asking for a sign, the religious inside want to fight? Because it says in verse 5 that when they had went across the lake, so they left where the Pharisees and the Sadducees had come and, and come head to head with Jesus. They get in the boat, they go across the lake. The disciples forgot to take bread. It's the disciples' job to make sure that they are provisioned. We're leaving from one place to another. We have to make sure that the logistics are taken care of, that there's enough bread for everyone to eat, that there's water skins that are filled up so everybody has something to drink. They forgot to get bread. And then as they're going, now you can almost imagine this. They're in the boat and somewhere across the lake, as they're crossing, one of them goes, hey, did you bring bread? And they're kind of whispering to each other. And the other guy like, no, I forgot. Did you? No. I thought Thomas did it. Thomas is like, no, I thought, you know, I thought Matthew was doing it. Matthew's like, no, I thought Simon the Zealot was doing it. You know, there's all these things. And then they realize they don't have it. So as they get to the other side, Jesus says to them, be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. So you can imagine they get to the other side of the lake and maybe they're setting up camp for the night. They were in one place. They were opposed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees as we talked about last week when Jesus is opposed. He says, all right, and he leaves. And so they go to the other side. They're setting up camp for the night. And then Jesus says to them while they're doing all this, he says, hey, guys, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they go, uh-oh, 
And they start to go back and forth among each other like he knows. He knows that we didn't bring bread and he is mad at us. And they start to fight amongst each other. They discuss this among themselves. You know, oh, it's your fault. Oh, it's your fault. It says in verse, six that, or verse 8, aware of their discussions, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking about yourself about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves or the seven fish for the 4,000? Oh, excuse me, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets full you gathered? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? So remember last week where we talked about whether the 5,000 and the 4,000 are like the same story just repeated? Right here, Matthew is making it clear they are two separate events. How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast and bread, but against the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why were they fighting amongst each other? Why? It says they were going back and forth. But that's just a nice way of saying they were fighting and they were blaming and accusing and all this stuff. It's because they forgot. They, they were fighting because they didn't understand what was going on. They had forgotten the nature of Jesus. Jesus is loving. He is compassionate. He is full of grace and mercy. And they're freaking out like Jesus is going to punish us. Jesus is going to make us pay for this mistake. We, we did something. We, you know, we just totally slipped our mind. And then now we are in trouble one of us is going to get kicked out of the 12. Like, you know, it was nice knowing you. I really enjoyed the run here, but, you know, you're the guy that's going to get blamed for not bringing the bread. They didn't understand what was going on. They fought because they didn't want the blame. You know, it's, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. They, 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 they had lost sight of what was happening, and they were focused only on earthly things. Boy, isn't that the way the church is sometimes. You know, you'll hear about fighting within a church over something so incredibly unimportant. You know, should we, should we put the, the, you know, the speaker in the middle of the meeting room, or should we have two speakers on the side? What color should the carpet be? Uh, pe- people divide and fight over the craziest things. People divide and fight over things that do not matter, just like the disciples here. We divide and fight over things we think are really important. Well, I, we're not dividing over silly things like carpet color. We're to, we are standing firm for what we believe to be the true doctrine of the church. And people will split over these things that just seem so unimportant. And I think the reason is because we lose sight. We lose sight of Jesus. Let me give you an example. Let's say that there is a church that is stylistically different than ours. Or let's say there is a church down the road that does have doctrinal or theological differences from us. We don't agree on some secondary issue. We agree on all of the essential things, the things you have to believe to be a Christian. We believe there is one God who presents himself in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We believe that there is one way to have our sins forgiven, that is faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that there is one way to have access and relationship with God, and that only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that there is an eternal destination for all people. And we believe that God, in his mercy, has saved us from the eternal destination we deserved, which was justice, and he has shown us grace. 
Those are the essential things that we believe. We believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. We believe that, that he was born of a virgin. We believe that he literally died and rose again. Those are the essential things. And we believe that. Two Rivers Church believes that. Life Journey Church believes that. Grace Point believes that. Uh, you know, Milwaukee Covenant believes that. You know, I, I could just go on and on. Hope City believes that. I could just start listing churches in the area. Good churches that believe all of those things. And yet we have stylistic differences or doctrinal differences. And we recognize that. But we're not going to fight about it because we know what's important. Yet people do that. While the people on the outside are asking for a sign, not because they want to believe, but as a way of not believing, the people on the inside are fighting over things that do not matter. Why? Because we have lost focus on Jesus. What does Jesus say to them? How is it that you don't understand, verse 11, that I was not talking to you about bread? And then he reminds them, right, about the 5,000 and the 4,000. He says, you guys are worried about forgetting the bread. You forget that we fed thousands and thousands of people with next to nothing. Do you think it is impossible for me to provide for us? Do you? He could have reminded them of the story of their ancient history where there was a prophet who was hiding in the wilderness because the king wanted to kill him and God commanded birds to bring him scraps of food every day so that he would not starve. Jesus could cause the fish in the lake to just start jumping out at them. Here, here's fish. Dinner's, dinner's taken care of. Start a fire. Let's clean them and cook them up. They're arguing over who's at fault, who's right, who's wrong, because they've lost sight of Jesus. The world outside wants a sign. The religious people who have lost sight of Jesus want to be right in their own eyes. What is it that Jesus wants? Well, they kept traveling. In verse 13, it says they came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, basically, if you think of the Sea of Galilee, if you have an awareness of kind of a general map of the land of Israel in your head, if not, you can pause the video, and in the back of your Bible, there might be a map, or you can just do Google Maps or whatever. But if you think of the Sea of Galilee, directly north is Caesarea Philippi. As the name might suggest, it is a... Roman Greco city. It is not a Jewish city. They went away for a while. Again, Matthew is signifying that as the people rejected Jesus, as their leaders rejected Jesus, he withdrew himself away from them. And you might think, oh, well, you know, that's Jesus showing that God has abandoned the Jews. I don't believe that for a minute. I believe that the Jews are still God's chosen people, that he loves them, he still has a plan for them, and that to this day, I guarantee somewhere in the world, Someone who was born Jewish became a follower of Jesus, their Messiah, today. In fact, more than one person. I just guarantee it. But at the same time, God will move on from a place or a people that reject him. There are churches that God has moved on from. And we pray that we would never be in that position, but that we would just say, Lord, take us where you have us. But it says that they came to this region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say it's John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? What's Jesus doing here? He's doing a couple of things. First, Son of Man is a messianic title. 
It is a, a title of, you know, ascribed like son of David. It's this idea of the person who, who fulfills this title of the son of man is the Messiah. Where, where does that come from? The son of man? I mean, I'm the son of a man. You know, everybody has a father, right? Like, where, where does this come from? It actually goes back to the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned because they were tempted by the serpent. I'll get into that, but let's just go with the real basics of the story. God told them that one of their descendants, the son of man, would crush the enemy, crush the tempter. So Jesus is saying, who do people say that it is? And so they start listing people. You know, the Son of Man, oh, it's John the Baptist. You know, people looked at John the Baptist, and understandably, there were people that said, hey, are you the Messiah? And he said, nope, I'm just making the way. But they were like, oh, maybe he's just saying that because he's humble or he's not ready. So there were people who genuinely believed that it was John the Baptist. Others who said, the Son of Man has already come, whether it's Elijah or somebody from the past. But we also know that even though the Bible does not teach reincarnation, the Hebrew Scriptures nor the New Testament teach reincarnation. There were people who believed that Jesus was a reincarnated John the Baptist. We saw that with King Herod a few weeks ago. Apparently, there were those who were saying that Jesus is just Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other great prophets of old returned. Uh, Elijah actually didn't die. He's one of two people in the Bible, Elijah and Enoch, who was recorded to not have died. And so some have said, oh, it's, it's Elijah come back or it's Jeremiah come back. And that's, that's what God is doing. And there's all kinds of ideas going around. What is it that you're supposed to do? What is it that you're supposed to be? Remember I said that the world outside wants a sign and the religious people inside are arguing. And there are all kinds of ideas going around. What does it look like to be a Christian? And you will see posts on social media, hear this in conversation, read this in blogs or news feeds. If you were a true Christian, you would do this. If you were a true Christian, you would do that. I can't believe that you are a true Christian because you believe this thing that I don't agree with. So Jesus is kind of getting a consensus, and it's good to be aware. But then he says this, who do you say that I am? And what did they say? Peter gets up and he answers, verse 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon, of course, another name for Peter. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whoever, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, what's this whole thing about Peter being the rock? First, Jesus says, what am I to others? And it's good to recognize that. Oh, you know, this is what my grandma believes. This is what my parents believe. This is what my kids believe. This is what my neighbor believes. This is what my church believes. But you know what? I, I've been around long enough to know that what your church believes does not mean at all what you believe. He says, what do others say? So it's good to acknowledge that. And he says, what do you say? And Peter gets up and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Who is Jesus to you? It doesn't matter what your grandma believes. It doesn't matter what your spouse believes. It doesn't matter what your kids believe, what your parents believe, what whoever. 
It does not matter what they believe. It matters what you believe. It doesn't matter what sign the world outside is asking for. You can only be a true Christian if you believe or don't believe or do or don't do this thing that I determine uh, a true Christian is. It matters what Jesus says. The religious are fighting and they're saying, oh, you're not a true Christian because of this or that, or you're somehow less of a Christian because you don't believe this or you do that thing or whatever. All of the stuff we've been talking about for months, false religious hope, false religious piety. Jesus says, what am I to you? Peter gets up and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. There's another story in the Gospels that I think is parallel and and just goes along with this, where Jesus gave a really hard teaching about following him and and believing in his death as the way of salvation. And, And so many people that were hanging out, listening to Jesus, wanting to be around, they left. They couldn't handle it. I was thinking about that, man. There are so many things. If I walked into one type of church and I just opened the Bible and I taught what the Bible said, either the people would leave or they would kick me out. And then I could go to the complete opposite part, uh, complete opposite type of church and open a different part of the Bible and teach what the Bible said and they would either leave or they would kick me out or both. And these people couldn't handle what Jesus was saying and they left. And Jesus turned to the 12 disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And again, Peter gets up and he speaks for the disciples and he says, Lord, where else are we going to go? I mean, you, you just taught this thing that is hard for us to understand. You just taught this thing that is hard for us to accept. You taught this thing that is difficult for us to process. It triggers us. It, 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 it makes us respond in a way that we're not comfortable with. But only you have eternal life. Who's Jesus to us? And Peter says, Jesus You are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Savior. You are the one prophesied. Where else are we going to go? We could go somewhere else where they're going to tell me something that sounds better to me. We could go somewhere else where they will claim to give the sign that the world wants. We could go somewhere else where the uh, arguments, the religious arguments are to our liking, but we don't have you there. Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. Simon was Peter's given name at birth. Peter is the kind of the anglicized version of Petros, the word for rock. But if you look, he says, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. We go, remember last week we asked the question, do you need Bible commentaries? I generally think no. I think this is one of the places where they really help. Because if you go to your Greek lexicon, and you can find this for free, blueletterbible.org, any, you can go on their Bible section, and any part of the Bible, you can cr- click the Greek part, and you can see what every Greek word means. And you will find out that Peter, which means rock, is a different word than when it says, on this rock I will build the church. It would be like saying, hey, you're Peter. You know, you're a little pebble. But on on this stone, on this giant boulder, I will build my church. It's the rock of the confession of faith. I have so many great friends who are Catholic or Orthodox. Peter's not the first pope. I mean, just historically, oh my goodness, you know, he's not. 
But the church is not built on Peter. It's not. Any church that is built on any person is going to fail because it's not built on Jesus. Any church that is built on a personality will falter because it's not based or built on Jesus. What does Jesus want? Jesus wants our confession of faith, and he wants to build his church on the rock, the solid, firm foundation of that confession of faith. He's, he's building his church on the faith of his followers. Faith in ourselves, faith in faith, faith in each other. No, faith in Jesus. And as we stand firm in that faith, we have that solid foundation. And then we ourselves do become strong. We ourselves do become hardened in a good way, strengthened in a good way. Peter, who was a guy, we know the story, right? He's going to bail on Jesus. He's going to talk a big game and then bail. But then after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit descends, Peter is a firm leader of the church. What does Jesus want? Because the world wants something. They want us to give them a sign. But is it really so that they could believe? Or is it so that you know, we can just fit whatever they want us to fit into? The religious want something. They want to fight over their unimportant things. They want to fight over things that don't matter. They want to take the focus away from Jesus and put it on their disputes. What does Jesus want? He wants our confession of faith. How does this apply to us? If you are not a believer... If you do not know that you have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you will get pulled at. The world outside will pull at you. The religious inside will pull at you. There will be people that say, if you believe in Jesus, you can't be this. Or if you believe in Jesus, that means that you have to be that other thing. But that's not what Jesus says. If you are not a believer, Jesus invites you to faith in him and to declare it and stand firm in it. But for those of us who are believers, this is also a reminder that our strength and our foundation is only as strong as our faith in Jesus Christ. That we stand firm, not in ourselves, not in any human leader. And boy, Americans love to stand, try to stand firm on human leaders, and we always fail, inside and outside the church. We stand firm on faith in Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead. If our faith is is based on Christ, if our faith is wrapped in Jesus, if our faith begins, ends with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is firm and it is solid. And that is the thing that Jesus asks. Jesus doesn't ask us to vote a certain way. Jesus doesn't ask us to dress a certain way. Jesus doesn't ask us to, uh, you know, fit a certain mold. He just asks us to trust in him and to follow him. Will that change us? Absolutely. But if you think that what being changed to be like Jesus is, is some version that the world has given us or that the religious have given us, you are mistaken. It is something totally different and radical and not of this world. And that is the invitation to believe that is extended to all people in all times, in all places. And it's for you and it's for me. And it's powerful. It's life-changing. May the grace of God be with you. If God speaks faith into your life, may you grab hold of it. If the Holy Spirit is stirring you 
to publicly confess, may you confess loudly. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, your need for Jesus, may you grab hold of him firmly. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you to return your vision to Jesus and stop arguing about the religious debates, do it quickly. May we all hear the Spirit's voice and respond.